0: President Biden is altering the balance of the nation's courts. We'll talk to Kerry Severino, who keeps a very close eye on all things judicial. Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard and this is First Liberty Live. Thank you for liking and sharing our videos. You are an important part of this project and we appreciate the fact that you care about these issues enough to share these conversations with your friends so that they can join in on them as well. Carrie Severino is president of the Judicial Crisis Network. She's also, uh, you've seen her on Fox News, you've seen her on CNN, you've seen her on MSNBC, bless you for that, and also on C-SPAN and other places. Uh, she's a co-author of the best-selling book that's co- titled Justice on Trial is about Brett Kavanaugh's nomination as well, and process, as well as the future of the Supreme Court. So I thought she would be perfect to talk to about all of this. Hi, Carrie.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. I I appreciate you making time for us today. It's great to have you on and, and get your thoughts on all this. As you look across all the nominees that the president has put forth to go on the nation's courts at all different levels, what's your read on that? What do you see? What do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, So, you know, it, it's definitely a very different last few years than the previous term, isn't it? Uh, we've Absolutely. got a different focus <laughs> by the president. And unfortunately, um, it's been a very discouraging few years in terms of judicial nominations. Uh, the president Biden seems to be looking more to check certain demographic boxes, to give uh, handouts to different groups that he wants to uh, curry favor with, rather than looking to find judges who are going to be faithful to the constitution and the rule of law. Now, unfortunately, well I think that looking at what the constitution says and and what the law actually just says and and interpreting it that way should be the best thing for whatever party. You know, it means it means if you've got a liberal law passed by a liberal congress and signed by a democratic president you, you interpret that strictly, you interpret the same way as you would a Republican-passed uh, piece of legislation, but unfortunately, um, on the left, that that isn't a approach that's in vogue, largely because... For the last 50 some years up until really recently they had such a stronghold on the courts that they were starting to view that as their branch of government that's where they could go like if they had something that was too radical to get past congress they would just go to the court the courts would just give it to them or they'd get like they'd get half the loaf in congress and, it, and instead of going back for the other half like ronald reagan said they would just go to the courts for the other half of the court the courts would make them a hand, hand and cheese sandwich out of it so it was this was a, a, a real problem and they're so angry that they've lost that gimme that automatic uh, court that they have just kind of gone whole hog uh even farther. So we've seen both I think not a focus on the right things and and we've seen um but we've seen a focus on uh, nominees that are truly extreme who have said who said things you know that just full on embrace of CRT. Microaggressions are violence was what one said. We've had nominees who are so focused on you know maybe the other ideological things that they don't even know the Constitution. We had one recently who couldn't answer questions about what is Article Two of the Constitution, what is Article Five of the Constitution. These are things that should have been taught you know in a high school civics class, and you would hope that you'd have a nominee that would review these before they would go say before the Senate Judiciary Committee for their you know biggest job interview of a lifetime, and apparently that's not on the top of their list. Well, and that's if you're. Unfortunately-
0: if yeah, you are an seeing. activist if you are an activist on the in the court system, you don't really need the constitution. I mean that's kind of the departure point for all this. I think it's helpful. We often hear people describe nominees as conservative or liberal. But really what we're talking about is whether they try to adhere to the words of the Constitution, and there are different philosophies about that, or whether they're more concerned about outcomes and reinterpreting the Constitution in their own view. And and part of what strikes me about that is if you're a conservative, to use the common language, and you you look to the Constitution for guidance, you will sometimes come up with decisions that you personally don't like. But if you're an activist, you like every outcome of every decision because you can do whatever you want. Do you agree with that?
1: I think that's absolutely right. I've heard uh, recent Republican nominees tell me that that's one of the hardest parts of the job is you see a law that's either really a bad law or, or sometimes they're just sloppily worded or they're old laws that really need to be updated and Congress isn't doing its job but your job as the court isn't to go beyond that, isn't to make something up that you think would be better. You have to follow it as it's written and again I think that's something that should appeal to people on both sides of the aisle at the end of the day. And I, I think really it's interesting, very telling. and I think most Americans do agree with that because if you look at the things that, for example, Ketanji Brown Jackson, the newest justice in the court, said at her confirmation hearing. She used a lot of those words, didn't she? She said things like, "Oh yes, no, I believe the Constitution should be interpreted as written, and the text law should be interpreted as written." And yet, at the same time, she said, "Well, I'm not an originalist, so I'm not a textualist," and she refused to really give answers. It's it it shows, I think, that even even the liberals and even the Democrats recognize most Americans really do want judges who are going to be faithful to the rule of law.
0: Yeah, I, most people hear about the nominees, and they know that there's a process. But I I dare say most Americans have forgotten what we learned back in high school, as you talked about. Walk us through the process. It's not just the president appointing people to the court. I often hear people say it's an appointee. Not really an appointee, is it? There's a process. Describe for us that constitutional uh, process that has to be gone through to get someone from being a nominee to being actually on a court. Uh,
1: That's right. uh, As we know, the Constitution is set up with purposeful checks and balances so that each of the branches could check each other. So we have the president, on the one hand, who's who's just running the show in in many ways, but they realized when you have just everything in one power, there's a lot of Downsides to that. There's a lot of danger. That's what they saw with King George, right? So they wanted to make sure they split it up. So they made sure they separated out one of the main functions that the king used to have in England, which is he can't they can't make the laws. The king the the president doesn't make the law, that's the that's the rule of the legislature. And we know how that you know, the two houses of Congress, the bill becomes a law. Yeah. But then we have another branch that, that that was also being abused by the British Crown, and that's the courts. We you can't have the courts Also underneath it, because then you've got the same people bringing the case as deciding the case and the courts need to be separate. The way that it's decided to do that and create that check, you've got the president. Who has the initiative? The president has the power of nomination, uh, and, and the early Federalists defending the Constitution said this is good because it means that there's one person where the buck stops. Kind of the, the responsibility is the, the the president has to pick someone good. If you could just pass it off to a committee, and some states do that, uh, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people who can just kind of pass the blame on if you get a bad nominee. The president has to take credit for it, but. They can't just have free reign because they they thought, well, that's going to lead to nepotism and, you know, just personal favorites getting pointed. We want the Senate to have a check to make sure we're getting quality nominees at the same time. So the president will nominate someone for any of the federal judicial sp- spots. That means obviously the Supreme Court which we see all the time, those nine justices, but also the 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 13 different appellate courts throughout the country. Those are divided into circuits um, for the most part just by a gr- different groups of states being put together. Right. And then the district courts they do the, the trials. So all of those the president gets to choose and particularly at, at, at the lower levels he'll also have a lot of input from the senators from those states because again the senate is going to be the final check on those this you need a you need a majority vote in the senate it, to get that that person confirmed and there's often an out, an outsized um, weight also placed on the senators from that state, if you know, and the Supreme Court is for the whole country. But say you've got someone from the Northern District of California, the president's going to then talk to the the senators from California to try to get their input as he's going through this nominations process. Then ultimately chooses a nominee. They have a hearing through the, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then they go up for a vote. And if they're voted on, they're on for life.
0: Now it wasn't that many years ago that it took more than a simple majority to confirm a nominee because there was a higher bar that had to be passed in the Senate. That was changed first for the appeals courts and then for the Supreme Court. Walk us through that. How different is it now that it's just a simple majority rather than that higher hurdle to get someone on the court system?
1: Well, yeah, and really returning to the simple majority is returning more to the historical practice because if we look throughout almost the entire sweep of American history, Judges uh, were not the political footballs they are now. Every once in a while, you would get a, a particular fight where there's a, a nominee or a particular president that really got people's goat. But generally speaking, if you had a nominee who was qualified and, and you know a reasonable nominee, they would get passed. Uh, historically, a lot of them were passed without they would pass without a hearing. Some of them were passed without them even knowing they were had been nominated. They find out after they've already been confirmed that they were nominated for the position. So, uh, so it used to be simpler. Really, what we saw was in 2003, uh, the Democrats, you know, they'd been kind of starting to weaponize this process for a while. With the Borg hearings, they really first realized, hey, we don't have to just confirm anyone. (laughs) We can actually block these people. That's trickled down to not just the Supreme Court level, but then to the appellate levels. And they realized, even if they don't have a majority in the Senate, with Borg, he was blocked because they had a majority vote, they would have voted against him, right? Right. They said, well, we want to be able to block nominees without a majority. So they utilize the filibuster process, which, you know, we think of Mr. Smith goes to Washington and you have to stand on the floor and keep talking the whole time. That's not how it works. What it really means is you have a vote for them to say, we're done debating this topic and we're going to move on to a vote. So always, actually, the vote for passage has been 51 votes. They still always just needed a majority, but to be able to get to that vote. They have to do what's called pass a cloture vote, file cloture, which means we're ending debate, and that threshold was higher. That was a 60-vote threshold. Right. So the Democrats said, "Wait a minute, we don't. Maybe even if we don't have the votes to block this person, we don't have to have a vote on them." So in 2003, for the first time, that was used, not against legislation, which it's been used on and off historically a lot. But against a judicial nominee in a in a purely partisan fashion, and so that then became the new norm. And so then it became, oh, you need 60 votes, not to get the to get to get to your vote, in the first place, and that really changed the process. It made it very hard, particularly for uh, President Bush, the second Bush, to get any nominees through because uh, a, min- a minority. Of senators was effectively having a stranglehold on all these judges uh, to be confirmed. Finally, and and this is a, I think a good lesson to be learned. The only way that was changed was when uh, it be, it became clear that saw what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And when when Democrats started when when the tables were turned when Obama's nominating and the Republicans said, okay, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna filibuster difficult nominees, we'll we'll do it too. Yeah. Suddenly, you oh
0: showed us how
1: clutching They're like, <laughs> "How could you do this? This is this is un-American." So they had to get rid of it. Um, and while they technically left it in place for the Supreme Court, uh, it really explicitly because a lot of people were worried that, "Hey, what if we got a Supreme Court nominee that might be willing to overturn a ca- a, a case like Roe?" Uh, we have we want to have the filibuster in place when Justice Gorsuch was confirmed to replace Antonin Scalia. I think he was a really good choice because with that 60 vote threshold, you needed someone who was such a clearly obvious, great candidate, really well-qualified, really level-headed, that when the Democrats filibustered him, which everyone thought was probably inevitable and it turns out was inevitable, they did try to filibuster him, um, that you had to have someone who was so so clearly a great nominee that you could get 51 Republicans to say, you know what, we're changing this rule. Because while there's that 60 vote threshold to get to the vote, they actually could change that that threshold with just 51. And so while there were a lot of not, uh, senators who didn't want to change that threshold, they realized this is just, if they're going to filibuster Neil Gorsuch, effectively, they're going to filibuster anyone. I think that was correct. I'm very glad they, they did that. It allowed us to go back to a world where presidents actually can get their nominees confirmed without having to have a super majority of the Senate, and that's really what the historic practice has been.
0: Let's talk about the balance of the courts. We've talked about the different philosophies, and there are essentially two camps, those who look to the Constitution for guidance and those who feel like it's a living document they need to reinterpret. Looking across the court system with the seats that are empty, the ones that President Biden could nominate people to fill, how much impact can he have, really, uh, in, the, in the years that he has left in office at this point?
1: Well, you know, as we were just talking, procedural... Uh, minutiae really do matter. And we're seeing already with the beginning of the Biden administration how effective some of the changes in procedure that happened midway through the Trump term term have been. Because so far, Biden actually is ahead of where Trump was at this stage in, their, in his presidency in terms of filling those seats. He just passed his 100th uh, confirmed as hundredth judge, uh, so he is having an impact in terms of just pure numerics. Part of that is because of some changes that happened again to the cloture process. You could still, now you can get rid, get past it with fifty-one votes. For, for much of the Trump administration, even after that time, there was, there were, for every judge, there were thirty hours of debate that were automatically attacked on then. Right. And um, the idea is you would normally use that for real debate, but people were just using it to run out the clock. They weren't talking about the judges. They just used that time. So Trump had kind of a the brakes on the whole to- first couple years of his administration. Biden did not. They finally changed those rules. So he has been going very quickly. Um, so in one sense, that's, you know, this is not great news. Um, on the other hand, the nominees he's been putting up have I, I don't think are, are set out to be the types of leaders that we had in the last administration. Um, it, we, if you look at comparisons of did they graduate uh, from top law schools, did they graduate summa cum laude, did they graduate uh, you know order of the clock all of these different uh, tra- did they tr- clerk at the Supreme Court, it's clear that Biden's judges. Are not they aren't bringing the same intellectual firepower that Trumps did. I think also when you look at where the vacancies happen to be, and that's some of that's luck with with the timing of who who retires when. He's adding a lot of judges, but he hasn't flipped circuits, as we've said, so in in the same way that Trump was able to. So you take a circuit that had a majority of of Republican nominees, generally speaking, those all still have a majority of Republican nominees. So he has had a significant impact. He stands to continue to do so. Um, But I think whether he'll be able to surpass Trump will have a lot to do with who retires going forward. If, if today, all the vacancies, even if he filled 100% of them, he still wouldn't have had the same numeric impact that Trump did, but we can't really predict going forward how many more vacancies will come. And I think it's also important to remember, he's at the second half of his term, which typically is a slower time for nominations because as i talked about with with especially the district court judges there's a lot of give and take with the senators what a president will automatically always do is fill the lowest hanging fruit kind of seats first he'll work with the senators who he's he's completely simpatico with he he filled all these blue seats right out the gate so now he's going to have to find states that purple and the red states where he's going to have to actually make some compromises that always happens you'll have a president will say okay i've got three vacancies you can pick one i'll pick two we'll move them forward. That's what normally happens. That's why we're starting to hear um, rumblings on the left saying, hey, why should you have to work with, with senators at all? Let's get rid of this, the blue slip, which is the the, the Senate term of the, for the procedure by which senators from that home state can actually block nominees. That's why the presidents always have to work with them. Sen- the Democrats don't want to have to do a compromise deal like every president has always had to do in history. They want to just move forward full steam ahead so you're getting some people especially the liberal dark money groups who kind of are always foot pedal the metal take no don't take maybe don't take a compromise for an answer they're trying to get rid of that process I hope they they aren't successful because I think there is a real value in that in um uh, making sure that you know those red state senators get get their say on a few of these but we'll see
0: Here's the big question for you. And and many of us see this on social media. I have friends (laughs) on social media who make this point regularly. They say the current Supreme Court is illegitimate, that somehow President Trump uh, stacked the court, that he packed the court with his nominees, and, and it was done somehow, they always say, illegally, illegitimately, whatever. It's it's always expressed in connection with a with an outcome they don't like at the Supreme Court. So you know you kind of get where they're coming from. I, questions on that: first, do they have a point? And second, how do we respond? What's the right way to answer when people make that claim?
1: Yeah, well, it, I mean, I think it's it's telling, as you say, not just that they're complaining about illegitimacy simply because they see decisions they don't like, but that the that the reasoning for this illegitimacy. Is ever shifting. So you know, it, it twenty years ago, the court's illegitimate because Bush didn't win for real, and he, you know, because Bush v. Gore, and we disagree with that decision, and therefore Bush wasn't really president. He couldn't, he shouldn't have been able to appoint anyone. Okay, right. and then they move. Then fast forward to well, the court's illegitimate because there's no way the Senate could have refused to take a vote on Merrick Garland's nomination, and 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 say our way of giving advice and consent is waiting for the next president, and then we'll we'll tell you what we think. And so that must be illegitimate. Then they'll say, well, well you know, Gorsuch is illegitimate because he didn't get, you know, he, he, they had to get rid of the filibuster to put him in. OK, then they'll say Kavanaugh is illegitimate because we thought that having multiple hearings and multiple extra FBI investigations of allegations that never had any corroboration to begin with is, isn't enough. So he's illegitimate, and Amy Coney Barrett is illegitimate because you know Justice Ginsburg should have retired earlier. And how could she, how could she have had the temerity to stay on the court and die so close to the election? I mean, they, they'll invent a new rationale every single time, and every rationale they come up with, if you actually look at history, you know there, there there's there's none there's, there's nothing to what they're saying. Whether it's people saying, oh well, you can't not have a vote on a Supreme Court nominee just because it's election year. Well, that's happened most of the election year vacancies where the senate was of the opposite party to the president two-thirds of those they didn't have a vote in the yeah. election year so and I, it, and advice
0: and consent includes no <laughs> yeah so
1: there's there's for every every example they're doing there's historical precedent saying yeah that's exactly what happens and i'm sorry you're disappointed but you don't get to try to Change the rules of the game, or claim it's illegitimate because you disagree. It's it, you know, it's it reminds me of the people trying to pack the court now because the people who say, "Well, we want to add more judges to the court because we just don't like, we don't like what these judges are doing." You know what? That's not a good. This is not a good reason to change our entire system, our whole Supreme Court system. So it, when you see people who are, who, who whose reason is really just they, I don't like the result, rather than go back and say, "Wow." I'm frustrated that that people elected someone who appointed judges I disagree with. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go bring our message to the people. We're going to try to elect people of a different perspective. That's what has been happening for the last fifty years. You know, after, ever since Bork when he got. Uh, borked effectively, and yeah. people said, "Wow, we need we need to work on this. We need to have better judges who are going to be more faithful to the Constitution." It's taken fifty years to get an originalist court, but it was the slow, hard work of saying this needs to be a top issue. We need to educate people. We need to train lawyers. We need to train new young judges about it. We need to express this to our elected representatives that this is something we take very seriously and 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 value as a, an electorate, and that's how you do it. And trying to short-circuit that is really, uh, that's not the American way.
0: And I do, sometimes I just did laugh at the brashness of those who make that claim. But at its heart, it goes to foundational principles about the nature of the American experiment, about the, the foundations of our government. Why is it a dangerous thing to go around saying the Supreme Court is illegitimate? Why does that bring problems to our system of government?
1: Well, you know, we sort of have started to see this in a lot of areas of our society where uh, you're having people making these broad claims uh, like this is an illegitimate government. Well, if it's truly an illegitimate government, then maybe you don't owe your your allegiance, and you don't need to obey our laws. That's what that really kind of goes to. Wow! If they really are illegitimate, which they're not, of course. You know, even even when I disagree, I can disagree with who was elected president. I can disagree with who was elected for my my senators and my members of Congress. That doesn't mean. I am not going to obey them. That that's a really striking at the heart of the rule of law. It's, it's very much like saying, you know, free speech for me but not for thee. And when you're hearing these these loud voices on college campuses where they don't they don't want anyone they disagree with to have a voice. It's like people saying that speech is violence because that really op- says, "Oh, well I can I can respond to violence with violence. I can I can if it's self-defense, I can use violence." It gives them the excuse to use violence. And I think calling our courts or any branch of our government illegitimate does exactly that. It really invites that kind of response. Unfortunately, it's part of a real pattern of an increase in uh, in threats against our justices and in um in in threats against the judiciary from the top to the bottom that I, I think is very, very troubling and um and is putting them, their families at, at physical risk, but also puts our our very government and our our system of the rule of law at risk because it it relies on us respecting even when we disagree with the the outcomes of this process and if if you know half of america is saying i'm never going to respect it if i disagree with disagree with it we've we've lost our um the, the beauty of an american system that allows for peaceful transfers of power and peaceful um respect for the rule of law for laws that you know we don't disagree with we may not agree with but that we have to still follow
0: all of this uh, for many people seems far away seems like it's in Washington nothing I can do about it anyway how can regular people speak into this process as engaged citizens what's our role in this
1: well, I think we have more input in who's into who's in the court than maybe we think. You know, obviously, I don't I don't get to nominate or vote for anyone myself, right? Neither do you, um, unless unless you know the president or the members of the Senate are watching. In which case, hello, and, and please vote for <laughs> solid nominees. But we do elect the people who do at the federal level. So I think the more that our our elected representatives recognize this is really an important issue the more responsive they will be to making that a top priority historically i think that was one of the big shifts that's happened over the last 50 years you had uh people like eisenhower and nixon who weren't looking in any way at their judicial philosophy of their nominees because they didn't think it was important to the American people. Maybe it wasn't at the time. Maybe they didn't realize how significant it was. And they were appointing people like Earl Warren, the most liberal justice in the Supreme Court, right? Bill Brennan, you know, Harry Blackman. Oh, these people who are who are some of the author of Roe versus Wade. They were Republicans, you know. And this is these are really um, shifting that. And I think that has sh- taken a long time to shift. And in the last election, it was very clear, Or then not in the last election, Like that was that was a, a much bigger challenge, I think. People were fighting on both sides really hard. But the, the, the previous election, when Donald Trump was elected, that was, I think, where it became most clear. Because the American people saw that the Supreme Court was on the ballot. Justice Scalia's seat was vacant. Yep. This is the person who's going to be filling that seat. And we saw that most Americans really, Took that seriously. And one fifth of voters said the Supreme Court was their number one issue, not just any issue, their number one issue. That fundamentally is why uh, the the president realized okay, I have to follow through on this. If every time um, someone is elected, they realize hey, the people who elected me want to make sure that top issue is making getting sure i get the judges right. Then we don't have someone who's going to be, you know, saying, "Oh, this is just kind of one more political back and forth. I'll trade that for the vote on this, for the No, no, this is important and we can see it now. Because Trump's executive orders are already out the window, the laws that he tried to pass, you know, they're un- undoing them every every chance they get. The judges, they're there for a generation and they're the ones who are now our constitutional backstop when Biden is trying to push all of the constitutional limits with his own administration. And remember, it's also, we've talked a lot about the federal courts. It's not just the federal courts. A lot of you live in states where the judges are elected. It's a it's an election that often a lot of people don't even vote in because they don't have a lot of information about it. It's tough, but get informed. Find out who these people are. And make sure you're voting for someone who will be faithful to the constitution as it's written. If you're in a state where the governor is the one who's doing the appointment, make sure the governor knows that, hey, I, I'm, this is one of the big reasons I'm voting for you is that If I know that you are going to have a good record On judges Because again, even if, if they don't think that's important to the people who elected them, it's not gonna be important to them and it's just kinda of gonna get lost in the shuffle of their of their priorities. But we see a huge difference in states where governors, when they have that authority, take it seriously and appoint great courts and to, to places where they don't, because state courts, that's where ninety percent of the cases are decided. And and they can make stuff up just as much as the Supreme Court can and with almost more problems because it's it can be harder to see it and harder to check them on it. So Very good. get informed and and make sure you're you're there trying to hold your elected officials accountable.
0: Tell us about the work of the Judicial Crisis Network. What do you do?
1: Yeah, so we were founded because we saw, in, in 2005, we saw the direction that this fights on, on judges were going. And so we were there to make sure that the, the people who were being attacked from the left, unjustly attacked, were going to have someone defending them. So we're there kind of in season and out of season defending the good nominees. And hey, I'll defend any of President Biden's nominees if they're, if they're also committed to the rule of law and the Constitution. I, I, I want to see good judges on the court. Uh, Also, we also do a lot of commentary just on on the Supreme Court in general and on the cases. I clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, now, you know, low these 17 years or so, but... um, bringing that understanding of what's going on in the court and trying to make sure we're there to help break down what the cases are really about for the american people because so many times you know the the media doesn't always get it right sometimes even just because they're not lawyers and they don't understand what's really at issue in the case they see oh this is a this is a case about you know fill in the blank hot button issue but often the legal realities are I mean, maybe a little more nuanced or harder to, to convey, and that gets lost in the five-second soundbite. So uh, trying to make sure that there's smart discussion of the courts happening is another uh, big priority of ours.
0: Very good. Where can people find you? What's your website?
1: Yeah, the, our website's judicialnetwork.com. I also blog at National Review Online's Bench Memos uh, blog, and I also am at, on Twitter at JCN Severino. So good. check me out there.
0: Lots of good insights in there, Carrie. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Very helpful. Appreciate it. Uh, anything else you want to share before I let you go?
1: Well, you know, just one final word, and I think it's especially one that uh, people at, at First Liberty will recognize the significance of, because we're seeing judges, particularly those who share these values of freedom of of uh, religion. Uh, being attacked left and right, I think of people like Judge Kazimerick, um in Amarillo, Texas, who is a former uh, attorney with First Liberty. I think of people like Judge Duncan, Judge uh, Kyle Duncan, on the Fifth Circuit, who recently got attacked at um, at Stanford, uh, just shouted down, not just not by students alone, but by administrators at the university, uh, simply because he had the audacity to, you know, be someone who has conservative uh, values, who had you know, for example, defended his state's marriage law before he was on the court, obviously, or been willing to defend the state of Louisiana in its uh, laws protecting fetal life. The amount of uh, vitriol and uh, threatening behavior that's being directed at judges is outrageous. And I think we need to make sure that we are uh, doing what we can to uh, defend them, both to defend their reputations, to pray for them when they are being attacked like this, um, and to to stand up publicly and say, we don't want to live in a country where our judges um, are being threatened this way. That's something that happens in, in third world countries. Uh, that's that's where they should be. You might You might think a judge would have to worry about his or her safety in their decisions, not in America. And I think we need to be very clear across the board that um, this kind of bullying of our judiciary uh, won't be accepted.
0: I completely agree. Very well said. Kerry Severino, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. We wanted to end this episode with a special update for you. We just launched something new that you might be interested in. Uh, I know many times you watch these episodes and you find yourself thinking, boy, I'd like to hear a more in-depth explanation of what happened at the court. Maybe you're an attorney or you're you're close enough to the legal profession, knowledgeable enough about it, that you want a more nuts and bolts explanation of what happened down into uh, into the weeds, if you will, into the detail of it. Well, we've got a new podcast. It's called... Called The Case for Liberty. And that podcast is specifically to answer that need that we know people have been having, that they want to get into the nuts and bolts and all. So if that's you, you can listen to it on any uh, podcasting platform. You can also go to firstlibertylive.com and on the navigation bar up at the top of the page, now there's a new tab that says Listen. So FirstLibertyLive.com, click on Listen, and that'll let you listen to the most current episode and also find the archive. But again, if you already have a a podcast app that's your favorite on your phone or whatever, just search for The Case for Liberty and you'll find it there. First Liberty Live, fighting for what matters most.